morning again, everybody. <laughs> Switch on, I think I should be. Uh, green lights on. I'll talk, I'll talk louder. <laughs> so the other week I had a call from um, my great aunt and we are fortunate, fortunate enough to be able to go and visit her in the summer. She lives in Michigan in the USA and she's quite an exuberant lady. She, left, uh, she was brought up in Wales and she left Wales when she was 18. Uh, you wouldn't know that now because uh, when I picked up the phone it was a very strong American accent uh, that greeted me on the other end of the phone, and she's sort of a larger-than-life character. Uh, so we're look, really looking forward to be able to go out and, and spend some time with her. But as she was going through, she said, is there anything? Is there anything you want to do? And I was like, I, I, I don't really know. Um, you know. What what have you got planned so far? And then uh, we went into a very long discussion of all the things that we're going to be doing. You don't mind travelling, do you? No. Uh, well, we're going to travel about six, seven hours up here. And then when, we, when we've done that, we're going to go six, seven hours over here. And when we've done that, we're going to go over here, over here, over here, over here. I was like, do we, do we have enough days for this trip? I mean, we're only there for just over a week. Yeah, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to fit, we're going to fit all this stuff in. Uh, and, it's all, and then she will remember, Google this, Google that, Google the other. If there's anything else you want to do, let us know. It's like, I don't, I don't think we've got time for anything else. But it sounds amazing. So... You know, we'll see in the summer, we'll see uh, how that goes. Now, the reason I mention that is when we turn to Acts 21, it kind of feels like Paul is doing a similar thing. There's a map up here, which I'll leave up uh, as we read, because uh, it might be easier just to, to glance at that for some of the verses to see where these places are. But Paul is packing a lot of traveling and a lot of people into this trip. And it kind of feels like, an epic road trip with Paul, except he's on the sea uh, quite a lot of the time. So we're kind of on this this huge journey, and this is the end, uh, the conclusion of his third, what is often called his third missionary journey. Now we're going to look at the text, we're going to read it, uh, and then kind of look at it in two ways. Uh, How Paul gets to Jerusalem, uh, and then his attitude to suffering. And for the purpose of this talk, uh, like suffering, when I say that, I'm really just talking about persecution. Uh, most of the time, Andrew can deal with the like greater suffering later on at some point. We can leave that for him. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So when I say suffering, that's that's really what I'm talking about in this talk. So Acts 21. It, it kicks off probably from where you were last week or recently, where they were uh, saying goodbye to the Ephesian church on the beach. So that's what they're talking about here in verse one. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was out to unload, uh, was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. 
When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Potolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's bout, tied his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this bout and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since we would not be persuaded, since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. So those of you who have been uh, following this series will be aware that Paul's uh, be, will be aware of Paul's travel style over the last few chapters. It's not just here that he seems to be uh, crazy busy popping in and out. This has kind of been the pattern for the last few chapters, and he's trying to see as many people as possible, as many churches as possible, on his way to Jerusalem. And in the previous chapters, uh, we're also told that it was the Holy Spirit who was leading Paul to Jerusalem. Uh, In Acts 19, verse 21, uh, it says, After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And again, in chapter 20, uh, 16, and then 22 and 23, uh, it says this, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, uh, because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Then verse 22, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are there waiting for me. And these verses provide a context uh, which help us understand what we come across in chapter 21. And it's going to help us navigate our way through it. Uh, But it's important for us to know that God is calling Paul to go to Jerusalem. Now, for the sharp-eyed among you, uh, perhaps you will have noticed a possible or a potential contradiction there on the screen in, in verse 4 of chapter 21 that we've just read, where it says, We arrived at, at Tyre. Since the ship was to unload its cargo there, we sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem, which kind of seems, uh, at face value, at odds with what we've just read. Um, now, there are, as you can imagine, uh, lots of things written about this, uh, and they all say kind of slightly different things, but the kind of general and most simple conclusion and concise conclusion that I could find uh, was this. Um, probably, however, we should understand the preposition through, uh, so where they say through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem, uh, as meaning the Spirit's message was the occasion for the believer's concern, rather rather than that their trying to dissuade Paul was directly inspired by the Spirit. So, 
it's just the way that, that Luke has written it. It's not saying that they, in the, the inspiration to tell Paul not to go was from the Spirit. As John Stott pointed out, uh, talking on these things, well, if that was, if he didn't go, then the Spirit's, uh, the later prophecy from Agabus couldn't be fulfilled. So Luke can't really be saying that. Uh, so it's only uh, a face value problem. So that's how Paul ends up on this journey to Jerusalem. God has been leading him. Uh, the Holy Spirit has been putting it on his heart to say, go to Jerusalem. And it comes with this message that when we get there, there's gonna, when you get there, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulty. And that leads us to looking at Paul's willingness to suffer persecution. So let's revisit those verses again. So uh, starting at verse 10, chapter 21. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Now, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to persecution, I have to admit I feel enormously underqualified to talk to you about this subject. Uh, to, to be very honest with you, uh, and I haven't suffered much. I haven't faced a great deal of persecution. My life has been, has been quite comfortable. And, and I'm quite grateful for that. And, and for those of us that have had uh, the, the kind of fortunate circumstances of a comfortable life, we probably are glad for that, aren't we? We praise God for, for that kind of protection. And I think it's our natural inclination as people that we, we don't really want to suffer. And not just in, uh, this is kind of the one bit where I don't mean persecution, but we don't really like suffering at all as people. We like to be comfortable. We want our lives to be sort of free from suffering as much as possible. And I imagine that if we're honest, some of our greatest fears are tied up with various kinds of suffering, perhaps for ourselves, perhaps for our loved ones. It's not something that we that we look forward to. And even if we accept that suffering is just part of life and inevitably it's going to catch up with us at some point, no one looks forward to it. Uh, and that's also true of persecution, I think. As Christians, we, we kind of know it's there, particularly in the West. We, we know it's there, but we don't look forward to ever experiencing it. And so this chapter is a huge challenge for me. A huge challenge to somebody who hasn't ever really experienced it and, and to be honest, doesn't really want to experience it. And maybe you can relate with that. You see, I often get nervous when my non-Christian friends ask me about things at church or things in the Bible. So I'm thinking like, oh, they're probably just going to think I'm stupid. You know, like uh, perhaps at school uh, where I work now, um, you know, it's clear in that kind of educational environment that the Bible, even though it's a Church of England school, the Bible is kind of one of those things like, 
Well, yeah, it's like, it's nice for those who want to believe in that, but, like, we know better now, don't we? Like, we've kind of moved on past that. We've, we're, we're more intelligent now, and we know that some of these things, they're just, they're not really true. And so I'm kind of thinking, well, like, if they ask me about some of these things, they're, they're just going to think I'm stupid. Uh, or, or worse, what if they think I'm, I'm now some kind of bigot? Uh, if they ask me about certain hot topics that, you know, that might affect certain other members of, of staff, then that's going to make me look bigoted, isn't it? Old-fashioned, out of date, horrible. And I get nervous when I think about things like that and in situations like that. But Paul, on the other hand, seems so willing to suffer, so willing to face persecution. He's perfectly prepared to put himself in harm's way for the sake of the gospel. That's so different to me. And yet I know and we know that this is the, the right answer, isn't it? That, that we should be prepared to suffer for the gospel. And we know that Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And we know that and we go, yeah, that, that's, that's right. And yet there's this reticence uh, on my part and, and probably our part to get involved in that. And so as I've looked at this passage and I've thought about it, I'm thinking, well, how can Paul say this? with so much confidence? How can he be so definite on this? You know, what is his attitude? You know, what enables him to say it? And how can I get that attitude? How can I be like that? And how can we be like that? Now Luke is quite matter-of-fact, the author of Acts, he's quite matter-of-fact in the way that he writes. Um, even like in Luke's Gospel, when he writes about like the crucifixion and things like that, it's, you know, it's quite quite matter of fact when he talks about the the lord's supper uh you know it's just kind of he goes from go and prepare me a room to they went out uh in, in kind of like half a page like john doesn't do that he takes chapters to unpack it so luke, luke's just there says it as it is moves on um and so we're going to have to move away slightly from this passage to to look at what is paul's motivation uh, how does he how is he able to say the things that he says with so much confidence so Paul's outlook. Now, in the context of suffering in Jerusalem, Paul said this in the previous chapter. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And here we get a sense of what's driving Paul of what Paul finds valuable. He wants to do God's will. He wants to finish the task that God gave him to do. And this isn't just like a one-off verse that if you scour the New Testament carefully, you can just find this one little nugget. Uh, it's all over the New Testament. It's all throughout Paul's writings. This is his attitude. This is his motivation. Uh, he wants to do God's task. Whatever God has called him to do, he wants to be obedient to do that. You see, elsewhere we see, uh, we see Paul use similar language in his letter to Philemon. Paul sees himself as like a soldier. Uh, and we see this also in, in 2 Timothy, where he encourages Ch Timothy to be like a soldier. Uh, in 2 Timothy, 3, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, it says, Share in the suffering 
as also related to suffering, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. So Paul's focus is on the God who's commanded him. And he wants to do whatever that God has said. He wants to please him, like a soldier uh, obeys his commanding officers, his superiors. In his letter, letters to the Romans, the Philippians and to Titus, Paul introduces himself as a servant of Jesus, or a servant of God. And servants and soldiers uh, have something in common, and that's they live to do the will of another. They live to do the will of another. Now, perhaps some of you will recognise this young man. Uh, if you don't, that's probably because you don't like football, which, you know, switch off for a couple of minutes, that's fine. Uh, but this is uh, Kepa Aritza Balaga. I haven't, probably haven't pronounced that right, but he is the Chelsea goalkeeper. Now, famously, a couple of weeks ago, uh, this happened. Uh, Maurizio Sarri, the Chelsea manager, decided that he wanted to take uh, Kepa off the pitch. And Kepa decided he didn't want to be taken off the pitch. Uh, and there was a standoff between the two. And in kind of unprecedented scenes, the referee has to walk over to, to Maurizio Sarri and say, what's going on? Is he, is he coming off or is he, uh, is he staying on? And the, the reserve keepers, they're ready to go. He stood on the side of the pitch about to come on with the fourth official with his board. And he refuses in front of everybody and millions of people on TV to leave the field of play. Uh, and it caused outrage. And, and there was a huge outcry about it in, in the kind of football world. Uh, and if you're interested, this is how Maurizio Sarri responded. And if you want an entertaining few minutes, have a look on YouTube at the, uh, the kind of full uh, footage. And the reason that there was an outcry is because we understand that when your boss tells you to do something, you're under obligation to do it. It's not, well, if you feel like it, today you could go and do this. When your boss says go and do this, you go and do it. And, and we understand that. It, it's part of everyday life. It, you know, boss is in charge, you're not in charge. And so if he says, or she says, go and do that, you go and do it. It's how it's done. And Paul says this, and, and this is Paul's attitude, he's a soldier of God, he's a servant of God. When God tells him to go and do something, he does it even if that means suffering. Now, soldiers are familiar with this concept, aren't they? Kind of almost by definition, when commands are given, go here or go there, it, it means they're going to be in danger. It means there's the likelihood of suffering, maybe even death. And yet they go. Why? Because their commanding officer has told them to go. So they go. And Paul shows us that being a Christian is like that. That we need to surrender to the will of God. That we need to be like servants, like soldiers. When God says go, we should go. But why should we? I mean, you can have bad bosses, right? You can have bad commanding officers, you know, just because it, it, Paul says we should be like servants, we should be like soldiers, wh why should we? If you can have bad 
authority figures, why should we? Well, it, it comes down to whether or not you believe God is good, whether or not you trust him as being good. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And this is kind of the marker, isn't it? This is kind of the standout thing. How do we know that we can trust God? Because God himself, in the form of Jesus, sets the example. He made himself subservient to the Father. He knows what it's like to be in that position himself. And if Jesus, who was God, made himself subservient to the Father, how can we do otherwise? You see, God the Father is worthy of our complete surrender. He's worthy of our complete trust. Now, the way that Luke has written this uh, section here in Acts 21, he's written it, in quite a clever way, because he's mirrored the way that he's written in his first book, in Luke, where Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. And I know that you've studied uh, Luke uh, before you studied this. And you will have seen when you, when you studied Luke that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a major uh, theme of Luke. And that's, it's kind of, that's how he tells his story, that Jesus is on this journey. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he dies on a cross. There's quite a bit of suffering when he arrives in Jerusalem. And here he writes in a, in a way that mirrors that, that Paul is on this journey uh, to Jerusalem. That there are these warnings that when he gets there, just like Jesus had these warnings, when he gets there, there's going to be suffering. Now, why? Well, not because Paul is going to die on a cross in Jerusalem. He's not even going to die in Jerusalem. He's just going to suffer. So why does Luke take the time to to write like this? Why does he put this mirror in there? Why is this important? Well, when Jesus went to the cross, it looked like defeat. It looked like God had lost. But God was using the cross. He was using the suffering there to pour out his grace on the world. Jesus' suffering in Jerusalem brought salvation and there's a there's a similar idea here that Paul is going to Jerusalem he's going to suffer there and it looks bad from a human point of view it looks bad it looks sort of like defeat doesn't it it's going to be chained up it's going to be bound his his movement's going to be restricted uh, uh, without sort of spoilers that's kind of what goes on to happen But Luke is teaching us a lesson from history that God is going to use this suffering to bring his grace to the world. See, Paul ends up uh, eventually going on to Rome, the centre of the ancient world. And that's 
hugely significant in the way that the gospel spreads out into the Gentile world. See, up until now, it's been quite sort of Jerusalem-centric. That's the kind of heart of the church. It's, it has spread a little bit to Gentiles, and Paul's done that on his missionary journey. But this move up to Rome is going to be key into spreading out across the entire empire. And what looks like defeat, God uses to bring about enormous victory. And Paul was prepared to trust God in this. And he was confident that God would use his suffering to bring about salvation somehow. That he would use his suffering to pour out grace into the lives of those around him. Why? Because that's what happened to Jesus. So what does this mean for us? That's kind of like, well, good for Paul, good for Jesus. But I mean, that was a little while ago. I don't even live near Jerusalem. How does this affect me? Well, I think kind of standing, uh, as I kind of admitted earlier, that as someone who doesn't suffer greatly, there's encouragement to be had from looking at this, isn't there? That at some point, if we haven't yet already, we will face suffering because we are Christians. Maybe in a light way, maybe in a more severe way, who knows? But in that day, we can hold on to the the truth that God will use it to bring grace into the world. That God will use our sufferings to pour out his grace to those around us. And for each of us, this is going to look different, isn't it? We're all called to different places. We're all called to, uh, with different roles, different uh, jobs that God's given us to do. Even when Peter, uh, talking to Jesus, says, what about him? What about John? Jesus says, don't you worry about John. You worry about you. John's got a different job to you. You just worry about your job. It's going to look different. But wherever God has put you, wherever God puts me, whatever comes across our path, maybe that's great suffering, maybe that's a little bit of suffering, maybe somewhere in between. Wherever he calls us, may you and may I hold on unswervingly to the task that he has given to each of us. Because it's going to be used to bring God's grace into the world. God's going to use that to pour out his grace, to bring salvation. It's part of our plan. It's not meaningless. So as his servants, may we do his will in our lives. May we perhaps seek again to to ask God, what is it you want me to do where I am? What is the task that you have for me? How can I kind of set my face to do that task? Maybe you're in the midst of suffering right now and you can take encouragement from the believers that you're with. Pray with them, share with each other how how things are going. Encourage one another. 
That was one of the huge benefits that Paul had in visiting all these different churches. He was encouraged and built up along the way. Yeah, may we see ourselves as God's servants, as his soldiers, people who are here to do his will. And may we do that wherever he puts us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word and it is a huge challenge particularly when we think about persecution may we also be encouraged by your word may we look at the example of Paul and look beyond that to the example of Jesus who Paul was imitating and may we have that same attitude may we see ourselves as servants of God. May we put aside our own agendas, our own um, desires, and may we swap them instead for your agenda and your desires, your plans for us. Lord, may we live to do your will. But we also want to pray for those here and for those around the world who are suffering, those who are suffering for your name. Lord, we ask that you would uphold them, that you would strengthen them, but Lord, that you would also pour out your grace through their suffering. That one day that they might be able to look back and see just the glorious inheritance, I suppose, that, that you have brought about through that and the, the meaningfulness of what it is that you called them to do. And may we face our futures with that same kind of confidence that no matter what comes, we will seek to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.